Hello, and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I'm here with my co-host, Matt Scott. What's going on, Matt? You know, not much is going on except for the fact that we have a really good friend of mine, mentor, and all-around cool cat, Bruce Dorn, with us in the uh, in the studio today. So, Bruce, how do we even describe you? I mean, so photographer, filmmaker, commercial director, uh, somebody who's never really worked in their life, but seems to always be working. Yeah. I would say, um, baby boomer layabout. <laughs> baby boomer layabout. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to coast on, uh, past achievements and make it to the final checkered flag without ever doing an honest day's work. <laughs> mm. uh, A role model yeah, to all of us. Exactly. Although I've seen Bruce work harder than anybody else on many days. I like the one description that you give for yourself, raconteur. I think that works real. I think that works well for you. You know, in any story worth telling is worth telling well. And as you pointed out, having had, had to listen to a number of my stories over, over the years, the details remain consistent. <laughs> they do. Yeah, they do. And, and my, my history with Bruce goes way back uh, close to 10 years now. And we, we did a trip called Expedition 7, and Bruce was on four of the seven continents with me. We spent about four years together traveling around the world. He endured my snoring, um, and I endured his storytelling, and we, we really did learn a lot about each other, and I learned a lot about photography from Bruce. Bruce is certainly a consummate professional, but more importantly, he is a mentor. He, he will take the time to share his knowledge with others. And, and I learned so much from him in my, my own personal photography. But before we get too much into Bruce, Matt, what, what's like the most recent cool thing that you got going on? Oh, man. Well, you know, I'm all into the gadgets. I found this thing at AutoZone from Griot's Garage. It's this synthetic clay bar and uh, it has completely changed my outlook on life. I mean, I mean, down to the core of civilization, it is just, it has rocked my world. So essentially it's a magic eraser for your car. Some of you may know, some of you may not. I have this um, relatively old Japanese imported diesel 80 series Land Cruiser that I'm in love with and have spent far too much money on. Anyways, pretty bad paint on it. You know, is sitting, I want to say it came from Kobe, Japan, everything that you associate with living in a city, pollution, whatever has just built up on this car. And now the paint looks, I mean, uh, pretty darn good for a a vehicle that's almost 30 years old. I think it's 28 years old now. And the thing's 2499. Like I I like it. I mean, they didn't send me this. Like I'm on my second one. I love it. I don't know. I like getting excited about little things that make a big difference. Anything that makes a Toyota paint job look good. Yeah. Cause that's really hard to do. Yeah. It's really hard to do. They never really focused on paint. Yeah. I mean, they just focus on things like reliability and functionality. (laughs) Are you using it on your face too? Because you're, you're glowing today. (laughs) You know, that's, that's. Oh, geez. You're making me blush. It must be your green glasses, Bruce. (laughs) It's just the fact you're a ginger. I'm not <laughs> I'm going to hold my tongue there. I am only slightly of a slightly ginger. Bruce, um, um, I think this might be something we need to ask everyone on our show, but it does Matt look like a ginger. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm not even like Claycroft is a, is a ginger. Yeah. I'm yeah. But, a, yeah. But you, you know, you walked from the car to the room where we're recording and you're, you're beat red, you know, from, from the 30 sun. seconds of yeah. sun exposure. I mean, I think you must have to use SPF one squillion. It, it's one squillion. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's just because I'm Swedish. I like to say I'm so Swedish. I came flat packed at birth. <laughs> how, 
about you, Bruce? Like what's, what's the recent cool thing that you you're digging on? I've been working with some really cool lights. Um, part of my career as a photographer and a filmmaker has been defined by working with light from the very beginning. I had one camera, one lens. The next accessory I bought was a light. I think I still own that light. But uh, lately I've been working with some portable LED lights from, believe it or not, an American manufacturer. There's still American manufacturers. Light in Motion is a company out of Marina, California, just a uh, a stone's throw above Monterey, and uh, they're at a hangar up there on the old uh, military base, and they're building, they, they manufacture uh, lights for bicycles, uh, headlamps like we use around camps, and underwater lighting. I was doing uh, a dive with a buddy. We were looking for megalodon teeth down in the floor of Florida Keys area, and uh, this guy had this uh, really wacky small LED light. We were in a hotel room way up above the beach and goes, check out how bright this is. He turns it on, lights up the beach. And of course, there were many people down there doing all kinds of interesting things <laughs> in what had moments before been total darkness. Um, <laughs> uh, the light was spectacular, but it was extremely blue in color, which was by design about 8,000 Kelvin, which is really high on the, on the blue side of the scale. And is that for underwater use? Yep. Okay, yep because it. as the light comes through, you, you lose red and yellow in the first 11 or 12 feet, and then it gets to be sort of bluish and greenish. You add your fill light with a blue light, and then you put a bunch of magenta or red into it in post, and now you get your color back. I, I was thinking to myself, if these guys could make this in a legitimate Kelvin temperature for surface use, I would buy a ton of these things. So I actually approached the company and have been grinding on them for a couple of years. And uh, now they offer the same units in uh, 3200 Kelvin, which is classically called tungsten uh, temperature, and then 5600 Kelvin. It's high impact plastic. It's got a very tight little LED array in it modifiers that you can put on it from Ellen Crom and some of their own proprietary modifiers. I think you can drop this thing from a couple of feet on the concrete and it'll bounce. Yeah, they feel super solid. It's nice. waterproof to 300 feet. Waterproof, not water resistant. I recently shot a little project for the local college. Uh, the theme was drowning drowning under student debt. <laughs> and I, I sunk a, a poor young lady uh, in the pool with uh, her cap and gown and then shot some pictures of her struggling with her student debt. For those of us who travel a lot, traveling with lithium ion batteries is, is a very difficult thing because of all yeah, the, have to carry, the issues. You have to carry them on, yeah. So because these lithium ions are internal to the lamp, they sidestep all of those issues. You can put them in the cargo hold. Oh, interesting. And it's, and it's cool. Pretty amazing Sounds uh, awesome. unit. Yeah. And, w- and what's the name of the company again? Light in Motion. And then the product that you're talking is about? Is the Stella brand. Oh, wow. Stella, nice. So you'll see them in Gold Rush, Bering Sea. You'll see them on Whale Wars. Uh, they are the light of choice for extreme conditions. I've got a couple that are on quick release uh super clamps on the uh, wing mirrors on my F-250 so I can spotlight deer. I'm sorry, look for campsites along the side of the road. And uh, then I can grab them off of the mirrors, go caving, go snorkeling, use them to light a scene around a campfire. Wow. So they're true cinema grade in a very small package. And the the ruggedized aspect is what really turns me on about them. Oh, that's cool. That's a nice little, pro- and an unexpected choice. That's nice. I like that. Yeah, yeah. You've got so many gadgets that it's cool that that's so many one you gadgets. picked. Yeah. Almost as many gadgets as you. And What's me? your thing? You know, I've been riding this Honda Africa Twin and I really, it's it's been an interesting bike to ride because it has the DCT. 
which is like a semi-automatic transmission. Now you dissed that initially. You said it was too heavy and you couldn't bump start it. It, It's the bump starting. That's the problem. And it's still a concern. So, but I've been right. It's been nice to ride a motorcycle every day. Yeah. So that's been, that's been my thing. And I, you know, I I realized the other day that it's a, it's a great bike overall, like for, for someone who wants to buy their first adventure bike, it's a great bike, but I think I would still want the six speed manual. You know, I went and test rode one and I like the automatic and I, I found it to be, what do they call it? Deep learning, if not AI deep learning, because when I was riding it casually, it, it short shifted was using the torque. But as soon as you got aggressive with it, it went, oh, this is how it's going to be. Yeah. Kind of like uh, the tranny in that that little German Corvair that I recently bought. Manumatic. It's got a clutch, sure. but it's controlled by a computer. I found it to be uh, really enjoyable to ride. Well, and, and at low speeds off-road, which people that are getting new to adventure bikes, they need to be riding slow in technical terrain so they don't hurt themselves or the bike. Yeah. Um, this this bike really allows it. It's kind of like a recluse clutch. So excellent low speed control. So you can be dragging the rear brake and feathering the throttle and moving through terrain um, really competently. So like low speed stuff, super good. I don't know that I would be in for the extra, I think six to eight pounds that it adds. And the fact that you can't bump start it in the middle of nowhere. But I guess if you're riding with other people, it's not a big deal. So yeah, and they make those little lithium jump packs. And they that do, kind of yeah. Thing so there's other ways. There are other ways around it, and they've got a new model that just came out that I'm excited to check out. But uh, enjoying being on the bike. I just want to point out to the listeners, since you don't have the visual, that when Scott was talking about riding through technical terrain, he was doing that handlebar thing that you do, <laughs> and his both his pinkies were in the air as <laughs> he was were, riding. He was prancing. He was. I was. He, he, I was. he, he, he My was feet being were going. very delicate with his controls. Yeah, very, but, yeah. But that is a big thing for a, somebody that's getting an adventure bike riding. I mean, these things are, they're, they're heavy machines, they right? Are. Like, I mean, the kind of correlation of that recluse. I mean, I know a lot of enduro guys. I mean, top enduro riders that use those things because it's just easier. I mean, it is easier to ride for sure. And it's still, I mean, this is the adventure sport model. So it's got over six gallons of fuel cool. has nearly nine inches of suspension travel. So it actually, it performs great. I mean, it's, it's something that a lot of people don't, don't look at because it misses a couple of those key points like cruise control and stuff that it matters, but it also doesn't matter. But this new model's got all that. It's got all the whiz bang gadgets. So it still has less travel than a KTM 950. Yeah, it does. More weight than a KTM 950 and less horsepower than a KTM 950. The one that I've got is still less horsepower. Yeah. The new one is a little more. But does it have my case? But does it have (laughs) the sex appeal of a, an electric (laughs) e-bike? Because that's, Ah. that's my, that's my, that's your new jam, your new jam. Oh yeah. Although you, you have this, that's a very cool story. You, you had this Harley Davidson that you built, 30 something years ago. Still have. Yeah. She's 31 years old this year. Yeah. And it was in like McCooney carburetor ads and everything else. And then you sold it and it, and it went, it went away. You didn't, you didn't know where it went. You didn't know who had it. And then somebody of your, what was the story? Yeah. I built it in 88, sold it for a massive profit. It was an easy rider and hot bike and calendars and all that stuff. I, you know how it is. You feel like you build one good one that the next one will be better. Yeah. Sold it for a good piece of change. It showed up on Craigslist out in New Jersey about three or four years ago. I bought it back from the guy for nothing. He had put uh, 5,000 miles on it. Wow. Since I sold it to him, but he had screwed it up with a bunch of weird uh, changes. So I put it back to the original condition, 
just like meeting an old girlfriend that you should never have dumped. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and she, for some reason, still likes you and, and you're back together again. So, yeah, no, I love that, that old thing. In fact, that was the first Harley Davidson I ever rode was your bike. And it, w- and it didn't suck as bad as I thought it would. Oh, that's, that's so sweet, Scott. <laughs> No, it was actually, it was super charming. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, keep talking. <laughs> I remember coming down the hill from uh, Jerome. We left together and I was taking a nap here at the shop by the time you finally rolled in. I, you know, and I think Martin will uh, attest to that. I mean, it, it was probably those psycho passes I was making, but I still, I'll still take it. I do remember that. I do remember that. So you're not only a photographer, but you are a world traveler. You have seen a lot of the world. And, you know, one of the things that we we like to talk about on this podcast is is help people relate back to how they improve their own journey. You have done photography professionally, but what are some things, initial things that you would recommend someone that is new to overland travel or they've been a longtime overland traveler and they want to just do a slightly better job or do an improved job of capturing their own memories. Uh, what are some basics that you like to tell people when they ask you that question? Yeah. I mean, how can we be as good as Bruce Dorn in three minutes? <laughs> <laughs> this is where the cricket sound effects come in. You know, I think the the number one thing is taking the time. We we struggled uh, on E7 to a certain extent because we were busy getting going during the early prime light and we were busy trying to find a campsite and making those last few miles during the afternoon prime light. Totally. So if you go with the intention uh, of making imagery as one of the priorities, then it will automatically improve no matter what tools you're using. Obviously, magic hour is a great time to shoot. Having the camera ready at all times. I remember a few occasions of shots that I that I missed, and I will kick myself forever uh, because the camera was just out of reach. Um, you know, you can you can put a camera in P for professional mode, and it's going to work well for you for about. 92% of the time you can go in AV, you know, some kind of aperture priority or shutter speed priority. I tend to work in a manual mode and I'm constantly aware of light. I like the fact that I need to be aware of what's going on with the light. And so if you're traveling along, if you're in Arizona, it's sunny, it's, you know, the sunny 16 rule on the front side and two stops open from that on the back side. you never need to use a meter. Um, when you're in scattered clouds or overcast conditions, high cirrus kind of stuff, it's going to be different. If you're moving in and out of open shade, it's going to be different. But if you're aware of what's going on and you're sort of, it, there's nothing to photograph at the moment, but you see it, the cloud covers rolled in and the light has changed, color temperatures changed, make the adjustment to the camera on the on the uh, console next to you, have the camera ready so that when something happens, you're prepared for you it. You can still capture it. Yeah, I was uh, dragging a trailer full of snowmobiles up to Togety Pass in uh, uh, Jackson Hole, heading over toward Kelly, no, toward Du Bois, Wyoming. And we were crossing uh, a tributary to the Snake, and I'm driving, trying to keep the trailer behind me on Icy Road, and we saw a line of bull moose walking single file down one bank across the frozen stream and up the other bank. I think there were like 15. Wow. And they all had these massive racks. It was a spectacular shot. I, of course, jackknifed the trailer trying to get it stopped and get the camera in my hands fast enough. And all I got was, you know, the the last moose's derriere as they disappeared into the forest. Had another occasion where I was driving and uh, I saw 
we were back in some back country on a snowy road and I saw a little flicker of movement in my side mirror and I looked back and there were three wolves bounding through the snow, two grays and a black and the snow was very deep. So they were porpoising through it. Again, camera was just a little too far away. So that can only be a neurochrome. I'll remember it. I've got it, you know, in my head. I remember both of those shots distinctly. And you'd think at this point after almost, almost 50 years as a pro, that it would never happen, but I was just up in Jackson and I went over looking for some uh, black bears and a berry patch that I know is productive. I had my 200 to 400 zoom on my 1DX Mark II in my lap because I knew up the hillside there were some berry patches, service berries, I think they were. As I come around the corner, there are two bear cubs not 10 feet away from me on a tree branch. There was a tree growing up the downhill side of the road's slope. And they were no more than 10 feet away, posing, backlit, and perfectly framed. And I had so much lens on the camera that I could have shot a nice image of the pupil of one of their eyes, but no way I could get the shot. By the time I fumbled around, got everything changed, they were gone. So, But I came back the next day and got a couple of good shots because I knew they would be in the area. But I, I think being prepared, being in the mindset of, of capturing images is number one familiarity with tools. There's a, there's an old saying from the old West, beware the one gun shooter. You know, that rancher who's got a lever action 30, 30, and he uses it to get his dinner and to chase off scoundrels. I be nervous about that guy because he knows that tool. If you are working with too many cameras, too many lenses, you can actually create obstacles to your capacity to capture. So Sometimes less is truly more. So well, that leads to a question. If you were to have one body and one lens, what would it be? Well, you and I came to the same conclusion, I think, when we were out on E7, that right. 28 to 300, something that's got a really long range uh, from fairly wide to some telly uh, is going to be a good choice. So that uh, 28 to 300 L lens, you were on this Mark 5D Mark III. Three. Yeah, 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 Mark III. And so uh, that kind of combination is good. There's some really neat little cameras that have uh, what they call zoom lens reflexes, where the uh, it's a, a fixed zoom. A number of different brands make them, and I think that would be a, a really good way to go. But yeah, that was a truly special lens. In fact, when when I migrated to Sony, it was the greatest loss for sure. You know, the only thing uh, that I found problematic with it is on the 28 end. Uh, wide angles are, are most interesting when you use them close. When you, you, you get up close to something, it, it really increases the, the scale of the foreground object, pushes the background back, and it, it's an easy way to add a lot of drama. That, that particular lens, I think the closest focus on the 28 uh, millimeter end was pushing four and a half feet, something yeah, like that's, that. That's quite a while. Yeah, and you, and you want to be able to have it so that you can get 12 inches from the front element or something like that. So I, I went back to my old school roots and got a, what's called a Barlow lens, not named after Nina. And it's a, a single element lens that you spin on on the front like a filter. And it pulls infinity in so that, you know, your furthest the lens will focus is maybe 10 feet. Oh, interesting. But then it brings it in to about 18 inches on the front. So oh, wow. having one of those, and if you can spin it on quick enough, then then you can make that work. But it, And what body would you put it on? Well, um, bodies come and go. It's always about the yeah. lenses for me. I haven't seen a bad camera in a while. I yeah, was working this stuff. Working this summer with a young uh, Hopi girl who I'm mentoring as a photographer, and I put her on uh, the little Canon M50, 
and with a little uh, 18 to 135. And we were shooting, I dragged her along on some concept fashion shoots that I was doing. And I'll tell you what, it's hard to discern the differences between what was coming out of the APS-C sensor on that and the EOS R that I was uh, test driving, EOS R and EOS RP. At 16 by 20, I defy you to tell the difference, sure. you know, and, and of course you can make stupidly large enlargements from the bigger stuff and sensor size is not just about pixel volume. It's more about the way that the image is rendered. The larger the final capture format, the shallower the depth of field at any given f-stop. So there are ways that it paints the image that feels different. But camera bodies, I just have something that has good weather sealing. You know, we, we learned so about bad. that. Yeah. And, and good temperature resilience. When we started out E7, I remember I've got a shot somewhere of the back seat, and I, we had so much stuff. And then by the end, it was down to a body and a couple it, of lenses it was, and, yeah. and a camcorder. By the way, those camcorders were disposable. I had to throw those out after it got home because there's not a service center around that will work on a camera that's been sandblasted <laughs> because it destroys their workspace. They go, yeah. has that been in the sand? Don't even come in the door. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that, there's just no future in it if you get them in the sand. And I like to, I like to, you know, flashback on when you guys dumped me out there in the sandstorm. Uh, was um, was that in Namibia? Or? Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> I little, remember that. that little German village. Yeah, picture this. Oh, Brucey, you know, get some shots of us coming from you know quarter mile away, and they dump me out, and then they go by, and they go another quarter mile so that I, you know, I can get the going away shot, and then they sit there, you know, lounging while I jog, uh, <laughs> jog, jog through the sandstorm down there, you know, but. Um, Weatherizing, you know, toughness. Generally, I'd look for toughness that, and redundancy. Canon R that you've been playing with is pretty, pretty nifty. Oh, I love that thing. Yeah, well, it's Gen 1. You know, of course, Canon is uh, arriving at the mirrorless party with the party, you know, well underway. And the first offering, the EOS R, I would consider to be about the equivalent of a 6D versus like a 5D Mark IV. It's not got all of the pro content that I think everyone would have liked, but the price point would have been much higher. What a what a terrific camera! It yeah. just works. A little twenty four to one hundred five. I shouldn't say little. I mean, it's a significant lens. I mean, I know you guys are talking about the twenty eight to three hundred. Is that's kind of your money maker? It was For me. Yeah. The twenty four to one hundred five. I mean, I've shot that my entire career. Yeah, it, so much muscle memory with it. Yeah, if that was if you had to, you know, the desert island one lens, that twenty four to one hundred five L would be the way to go. The The new mount that Canon has come up with, this R mount, is the mount for the next 30 years. I mean, they introduced the uh, EF mount about 30 years ago and rode that pony uh, for a long time. The engineers are saying that they can invent, they can now offer lenses that they never thought were possible before because of the diameter and the uh, distance from flange to sensor. And we're starting to see it. I, I Sold, I've sold my beloved 70 to 200 F28IS to Mercedes, who's, yeah, sure. who's, who's rocking that thing, uh, in anticipation that the RF version of it would follow quickly. That lens is so short, it actually trombones when it changes focal length. So it's about the length of an 85. Wow. So it's a t- going to be a tiny little thing. Yeah, that's really handy. And then they're getting super speeds on a lot of the primes. So I'm slowly moving over to RF mounts. But of course, they gave us some really interesting mount adapters to be able to put the EF lenses on the RF bodies. And I'm using those. So 
plenty of options. I, d- I just love the compact too. thing. I mean, you know, so- something that I always look for, I, I exclusively reserve the center console of all my trucks for cameras. Cause it's just, it's easy. It's protected. You don't have to worry about it really rocking around. And I mean, to be able to have a 70 to 200 that potentially fits in the center console for travelers where space is, uh, I think it's always a concern it's for always travelers, concern, right? Especially when you're off of a motorcycle. If I can't fit it into a tank bag, it just can't go. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the, the new RF 7200 is about the size of a soda can more diameter, but about yeah, that, yeah. About, about that long. Uh, and you, you know, uh, I like the idea of compactness in, in the tools as well. And, um, one thing I won't give up for small size is battery capacity. You can carry right. a lot of batteries and, uh, uh, that's pretty easy, but, um, yeah, that was the thing that always killed me with Sony is yeah, I, the I switched to it. were terrible. Yeah. I, and you have the new one. I, I switched to it because you could charge it by USB. They had all these small lenses yeah. and, you know, again, it's just the muscle memory of Canon that I guess won out for me, but color science. Um, yeah. when the other guys, you know, Fuji does some pretty good work and, and of course Sony is out there swinging for the fences all the time, but Fuji. But I've never, uh, I, I've never regretted making the move to Canon. One of the big things was Canon Pro Service. I mean, it's just ridiculous how well they treat you. you yeah, know, they, they do. turn the stuff around quickly. As as a pro, if it comes in, the amateur stuff gets broomed and your stuff gets worked on. I generally, when I send something out, it gets fixed the day they receive it, or at worst by lunchtime the next day. So, you know, if you have to mail order the stuff away, it's it's still not gone for very long. Well, you're literally counting on it, not only for your living, but to meet your clients' needs. And yeah, when you're, when you're needing to make money, it's just the same thing. Like when you're crossing Antarctica, there's a reason why you drive a Hilux because it's the best tool to take across a continent like that. And I don't mind the resale values being consistently high. That's yeah. a, that's a good thing too. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess while we're talking about Canon, so you're a Canon Explorer of light. Yeah. That's, uh, the program started, oh, geez, I'm going to say could be 25 years ago by now. And, um, I'm not one of the OG, but I've been in it for 15 years. Um, and it's, it's not something where, well, it, it was originally, uh, these are the best guys in their category period. And they use cannons. I know that some of the companies will go, oh, you're really good. Come and we'll give you some free cameras if you use ours and endorse them. Canon's policy was to find people that were Canon users, like they just find you. You know, if you happen to be the best air-to-air airplane shooter or the best guy shooting blue water sailing, they and and then they note that you're using their equipment, they they might reach out to you. And that's sort of what happened to me. And um, uh, enjoy the relationship. It's It's been really cool because I've gotten to introduce quite a few of the products that uh, went on to to do great things. Hiding in plain sight. There's been more than one occasion when I've been walking around shooting a prototype that everybody was still, you know, talking about on Canon Rumors or something like that. And I've got it in my hands at that moment, uh, actually beta testing it. Got to shoot the 800.56 and the 200F2 in Africa. Went down there and did uh, portraiture with the 200F2 and some bird work with the 800.56. And then I helped introduce, I was the second guy to use the 5D Mark II after Vincent LaFerre's uh, famous weekend with the, the camera. And gosh, uh, C300, original C300. Yeah, and then, you spent a lot of time with those cameras. Yeah, and the EOS R, the Mark IV. Um, I 
appreciate the trust that Canon has put in me. You yeah. know? I'm kind of their general practitioner. I described how it's mostly specialists. And I would say I'm kind of the country doctor of explorers of light. I do a little bit of everything. Yeah. And people can see some of your work on Instagram. I mean, you don't really take it that seriously because of, you know, I, I was aware of social media as a coming thing, but I didn't take it seriously early enough. So I didn't really stake out that much ground in it. I was more busy uh, uh, shooting than crowing about shooting. Well, and I, I remember you, I mean, talking about the breadth of your career. I remember you telling me about a Arnold Schwarzenegger movie you were working on. I mean, you you have done so many uh, interesting things, which leads me to the question of, do you have any regrets from that? Is, are there, are, is there one thing that you wish you had done different? Well, I got, um, I'll, I'll back up in time a little bit. I almost, my career has almost been defined by falling into things rather than seeking them. You know, I kind of have always done my own thing. I just, uh, the goal is to get up and entertain myself and and have some fun. And then on a regular basis, somebody notices that and hands me some dough. So I got to Hollywood by dumb luck. Uh, I was a stills shooter in Phoenix back in the really early 80s. Phone call came in. Somebody asked me if I shot film. I course i shoot film i'm a photographer by the end of the conversation i realized they're asking me if i was a motion picture camera operator and i had gotten so far down the path that i just said yeah sure and and then i read up on it and went to the shoot and was (laughs) able to you make it right yeah (laughs) yeah uh, a little bit of that and then uh, that project or the one that followed uh got me to some big awards thing i think uh in the clios and uh that got me an invitation to hollywood and Next thing you know, I was creative director at a, a special effects house that was at that time the biggest effects house in the world. And out of that came uh, Pixar people and Industrial Light and Magic people and uh, Rhythm and Hughes. Uh, all the we we really did all the groundwork along with another sister company called Digital Productions. We invented computer graphics there. So that was the '80s, and it was very fruitful. So I was living large and. Uh, getting the projects that you dream about instantly. Now, the regret. I was, uh, there, the CAA and some other places started sending me scripts because that was the time of Tony Scott and Ridley Scott and Adrian Lyon and the British invasion of all the commercial filmmakers, you know, Top Gun, Miami Vice, all these real glitzy looking, where visuals were a really strong part of the, the uh, project. And I started seeing scripts and I started reading scripts. And I started going, I'm going to have to take a big cut in pay to do this movie because you as a first time director on features. You basically get DGA minimums and maybe a piece of the backside. But I was going to take a massive pay cut to do features. And I just decided not to. And, you know, I, I did that for 20, 25 years. And I was I would say in a category, not the top, top, top guy, but I was certainly in the top 10, you know. And if you watch TV from 1980-ish to, well, not that long ago, there have been a lot of commercials of mine still in the last five years. You saw my work every night, yeah, you know, because I did every soft drink company, every car company, every beer company, every airline, every hotel. We, we, it was, it was a good ride, you know, we were busy. Yeah. But would I, would I like to have a resume of a, a half a dozen movies? Yeah. Yeah. That would be cool. And I suppose it's, it's, I always, I was recently over in Hollywood and went to a, 
a sketch comedy show to see some friends of mine uh, who are in an improv group. And I was going, you know, you could pull these kids together and do something. So who knows, you know, anything's possible. Yeah. So Matt question for you on photography, what's the current setup? What are you, what are you shooting? Oh, you got yeah. a couple of them. I know. But. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like to say I have two setups when I'm shooting for Overland journal or outside magazine or something like that. It's always my Canon stuff. If I actually have to work and make money from, from those images, I don't hesitate. I, I, I go to my 5d Mark four. I have a 24 to 105 and I have Bruce to borrow lenses from if I need anything <laughs> past that. Wait a <laughs> Don't look in your garage. It all becomes um, clear. You know, the, the thing that's really passionate to me um, is my Leica rangefinders. Um, they are, you know, probably the worst camera bodies you could think of shooting with. You don't actually look through the lens. You look through a, you look through a rangefinder. You're, you're looking off to the side and, and you're uh, essentially making Get, a, guessing at everything. Yeah, you're making you're 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 making a measurement based on 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 the the parallax between the lens and the the rangefinder. But they're you know fantastic full frame cameras. They're very small. I spend a lot of time in 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 Southeast Asia. I spend a lot of time in cities. And and my personal passion is is the you know the street photography. You know, so I have a Leica M10 and uh, Leica Summicron 50, which is. I mean, I guess Bruce, you could chime in, but Summicron 50 millimeter Leica, it's probably the best lens you can buy. There are more expensive lenses, but I mean. Yeah, it's uh, Summiluxes are 1.4s, Summicrons are F2s, Yep, Helmerets are 2.8s, as I recall. I started back in the day, um, you carried uh, Leica rangefinder for wide angles and you carried basically a Nikon F for uh, telephotos. Yeah. And uh, that would have been the package for a Vietnam era photojournalist, mm. you know, and uh, because it's really hard to focus a, and I'm not talking autofocus as contemporary generation, uh, ground glass optical SLR focusing a 21 millimeter lens is, is more of a guess than mm. working with a rangefinder. So rangefinders were actually technically more accurate, but very precise. And, and uh, you know, like everybody should own a Leica at some point. They're just, they're, they're, it's, I guess it's like owning a Land Rover or Land Cruiser, one of the classics. It really is. You just, you, you know, you just go, yeah, that kind of feels right. You know? I mean, they're pricey, but I've never, I've never lost my, my backside on one. You know, I, I they hold their value. They hold their value. I mean, I, I, I'll buy kind of more obscure lenses cause I just, I, I enjoy the, the, the pursuit of, of, of making those images with, with different lenses, I guess. And, and they appreciate, I mean, Leica this year is raising their prices 25% and it's predicted the used market will, will, will shoot up just yeah. like that. So, you know, I've had my, my M10 for two years and I always buy, I always buy everything used from Leica because there are, there are collectors that just buy these things and they never use them. Fetish objects. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're just objects to them. So I always buy used and, and honestly, I'll, I'll get paid to use this camera, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it's it's what it costs you, not what the purchase price is. Yeah, to- totally. I remember, um, I guess it would have been in the seventies. I, I was in a camera shop and a guy came in with a, I think it was an M3 mm. um, and uh, it looked kind of rough. And, 
what happened to that? And he he goes, well, I was in my buddy's Piper cub and I dropped it out the window (laughs) (laughs) and, and, uh, it's fine. You know, they went and found it out in some Indiana cornfield and it was, you know, well down in the, the recently tilled earth, but, uh, you know, blow it off and it was fine. I mean, they they had one moving part basically. Yeah. If you need to bludgeon someone to death in your travels in self-defense and you want a camera you can use afterwards, (laughs) Highly suggest Leica. Yeah, I've been I've been shooting that monochrome recently, yeah. and I and I like that. It's with the seventy five millimeter one four. And, and for those who don't know, the monochrome is actually it's a digital camera, but it is natively black and white, so there is no color filter on it. Uh, and, yeah, no they are filter. Yeah. Well, they aren't RGB; they're all luminance uh, yeah. uh, photo sites. So yeah, it's got dynamic range. It's really and, beautiful. The dynamic range, I yeah. think so. Yeah, it's been fun to shoot. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We're going to do a little lightning round, Bruce. We're going to oh, ask gosh. you a bunch of questions. Okay. All right. What's, what's the weirdest thing that you've ever experienced in your travels? Oh my gosh. <laughs> the list is, the list is so long. Oh, okay. It was, uh, being at NordCap yeah, with I you. I was hoping you'd say that one. <laughs> was it, we were at NordCap. We drove to the, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's as far north as you can drive on the planet. It's as far as north as you can drive on a road in the world. On a legitimate road. And we were out on one of the fjords. I prefer Chevys, but we were out on the end of one of the fjords (laughs) at Nordcap. And there's, uh, according to all the images we had viewed going up there, there was some Atlas kind of guy or something holding a, a big sculpture of the planet. We arrive and it's extremely foggy. Totally. And I, I put you and Greg up underneath the, the big sculpture, take a couple of pictures and we're getting ready to leave. And I go, oh, wait a minute, Scotty, grab one of me. And I go up there and I'm posing. And out of the, out of the mist came a female who came up and, and, and kissed me and then disappeared into the mist. Yeah, she, she ran up onto the sculpture, grabbed you, kissed you, turned, smiled, and then ran away into the fog. It's my personal <laughs> curse, you know. This is the kind of thing. So I guess that's not really that weird. That's more standard. But. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, I remember throughout the travels, and, and this is one of the things that I wanted to bring up and talk about is um, not only are you a great photographer, but you, you, you have this, this ability to be not only charming, but disarming at the same time. You, you wear these bright green glasses. Um, you, you're, you smile easily. You, you're very open with people. Talk about that a little bit so that people that are maybe traveling for the first time or worried about traveling, how does that change the experience when you when you come in with that perspective. Yeah, I think just assuming the best of a situation rather than the worst. You know, there were many places that we went where we could easily have been mistaken for off-duty special ops. You know, everybody wearing tactical pants and and yada yada. But uh and I, I think you're you cut love from those pants. Bro. I do. You're you're cut from <laughs> you're the same still wearing cloth. those pants. <laughs> you know, we uh we both approach everything uh with a smile yeah. and and Hey, there was maybe one slightly uncomfortable border crossing where they kind of separated us. We're talking to us a little bit. And, and one of the guys was going, well, I'd sure like to come to America. Yeah. It sure sounds scary. You know, I think, I think, um, the, the world is, is there not to say there aren't dangers out there. You know, I, I've, there's a story I'm working on that does definitely addresses the fact that it, it is a place where you have to have 
your your tactical awareness on at all times. But I also feel like the the more you give, the more you get. So right. when you when you're approaching people, uh, and especially if you're a photographer, you know, in some cultures that can be considered a rude intrusion, and in others uh, not so much. But you got to be able to read the the people, read the the local customs and everything quickly and and react and and be ready to uh, adjust you know but yeah i i think uh for anyone that's going to do any international travel you're representing all of us in the community yeah so sure. i i say be appreciative of the this this great opportunity that you have and don't screw it up for everybody by being a, a you know ugly traveler yeah for sure all right what was what's been your favorite car of all time favorite car of all, all the way times. back all the way back to the to the one with the wing that you you beat up the bully with or whatever. Oh, that, <laughs> that was, story. That was another oh, story. That was the with the Cadillac that I used as a weapon, the <laughs> one with the fins. Yeah. No, there's probably still I, I'm not sure that's beyond the uh what is that thing? A statute of limitations. <laughs> yeah. I think it's well beyond the statute of limitations. Well, there was a, there was, yeah, that was a huge gang. There were a few classic there was a, lawsuits. There was a huge, we move on. a huge gang brawl that was taking place around my car. And I managed to get in the car and start it and crank the wheel all the way to the left and then bury the gas pedal. And it kind of cleaned out the neighborhood. You know, <laughs> it was, it was entertaining. Gosh, favorite car. It, it, uh, it might have been a race car. Huh? What was your favorite race, race car? car? Well, I had a little race car that I built that I was a dwarf car. It was a super bike engine. Car weighed 995 pounds and had 220 horsepower. I came in second at a Run What You Brung triathlon uh, up at Las Vegas. Lowest uh, aggregate time of drag strip, paved oval, and road course. And I beat everything, everything, Panteras, Ferraris, Porsches, beat everything in a home-built car that I probably spent 7000 bucks on. <laughs> and uh, it, it made it street legal. And then... Oh, uh, was this the manure spreader? Yeah, I licensed it as a manure spreader in Wyoming. I had a, <laughs> I had a cabin in Wyoming and I, I, I got it licensed as a manure spreader and got a plate for it and then uh, brought it back down to California. And I used to lie in wait for super bike riders on the Angeles crest and run them down while they're dragging their adorable little knee pucks around the corners. <laughs> I'd come up behind them and honk and then pass on, on the outside or through a scenic uh, uh, overlook uh, parking lot. <laughs> Sideways. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, what's, what's your, the, the most favorite place you've ever been like in the world, the one place you want to go back to, I think I know what the answer to this one is, but if you could tomorrow, if you could hop on a plane anywhere in the world, where would you go? What's your most favorite place? Well, I sure, I sure love Norway. I yeah, sure love Norway. Norway. And of course I love, uh, Botswana, yeah. uh, and the Okavango. And, uh, I've, I, I love New Zealand. What were you going to guess? Which one? I was going to say mound could fly into mound. Oh yeah. For Okavanga. Oh yeah. 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 You talk about it a lot. Well, you know, I guided there quite a bit. Our mutual friend, Andy Biggs, uh, I got into guiding safaris when Andy, whenever Andy forgot that his wife was pregnant and was about to give birth, he'd go, he'd go, Oh darn. Uh, my wife's about to give birth and I've got a safari. Bruce, can you cover it? I covered a couple of safaris for him that way. And then I got into guiding and, uh, I would say that Okavango 
is is probably well it's as close to eden as you're going to get that one shot you've got of the of the uh, i think it was oh. a lion coming through the water was Lions. unbelievable like one of my favorite photographs in, in the world yeah in the world yeah another fellow that was on the trip uh, i was guiding a group and another fellow was with me uh, was on the same lens and same body and i said this she's going to come you know she's coming yeah because we could see that she was getting ready to sort of charge towards us and uh, we were both smoking pixels. He won the uh, uh, Smithsonian Wildlife Photographer of the Year for that. And then I have the, the same image, but from a little lower and to the right. And Canon used it quite a bit. And people were accusing both of us of having ripped the other guy off. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, that was a pretty special moment for sure. And yeah, uh, incredible. one in that series that I didn't publish was that same cat coming through the the, the water crossing uh, submerged to the point that only her nostrils were sticking out and the tip of her tail. Wow. And then that one that uh, that I, I have published so widely was a pretty special moment. But, you know, it, it, the world is filled with special moments. The trick is to uh, be alert and be open to receiving them. And that brings up something that I thought we would talk about briefly is this, it's this whole idea that imagery is now this form of narcissism. And I think that people have forgotten that these moments are occurring that we should be capturing. Yeah. It doesn't need to be the camera turned towards ourself in 90% of the cases, like you see um, with so many people, even travelers today, but maybe turning that camera around or shutting the camera off and actually experiencing that moment, something that you can remember and maybe changes you a little bit. You can't be a good image maker without being someone who is very aware and in touch with what's going on around you. So if, if all of your senses are turned inwards and it's a narcissistic moment, how, how, how am I in this moment? What do I think? You miss all the good stuff. It's a variation. Yeah. I mean, you can miss a lot of stuff by chimping. That is looking at the images on the back of your camera when the action is still going on. But you can miss a lot of stuff by just thinking about how cool will I look in this situation. Image capture in its purest form is about being able to share experiences with people that weren't able to be there. And I I don't think that necessarily has to include us to prove that we were there. Yeah, selfies are awkward. They become so commonplace that now they they don't feel, they they should feel way more awkward than they do. I mean, I I guess I feel if I'm going to take the time to look at somebody's body of work, I want to be inspired by that, especially, you know, travel photography. I don't really care about somebody's face that's blocking Angel Falls or Uluru, wherever that person is. I mean, I, I want to see a, a, a thoughtful image of, of that place, not, not of them. In fact, I, I think the first photo I saw that was a, an image of you in years was you sitting inside the new Defender. Yeah and, yeah. and that was because that moment, like at least for you and I. It was super special. It was super special yeah. to be at Land Rover in the UK and seeing the new Defender, being some of the first in the world to see the new Defender, uh, that was that was a very special moment. Um, and those are the kinds of things we do want to share because you that can was see- a proof of life photo. <laughs> was I was like, of- you know what? Nobody is going to believe me that Land Rover <laughs> flew me and Scott out here to see this Defender months before everybody else. I should probably get probably a photo, grab a photo, of, that. photo of that. And it wasn't a selfie, actually. It wasn't a selfie. It right. wasn't a selfie. Yeah, because we, we, we weren't allowed to have ours. We weren't allowed to have our. Yeah, they bagged phones. our phones. They did bag our phones. So, <laughs> yeah. Did the, did they, when they had your, your phones, did they come out on Facebook uh, in your behalf? Oh yeah. <laughs> I like Land Rovers. Toyotas suck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, what's next, Bruce? What, what, uh, what's the next big adventure for you? 
Well, I'm waiting to hear if I get a camera to play with um, soon, which would be nice. I'm going to be working with my young mentee in a couple of weeks. We're going to I've uh, been working with a little Hopi gal who... Uh, and does she have an Instagram that we can check out? Yeah. Uh, I think it's Sarah.Honani, H-O-N-A-N-I-E. Awesome. Um, and there's an article that I wrote about us working together in the October 2019 Outdoor Photographer magazine. And she and I are going to be shooting some uh, uh, native rodeo uh, in a week or two. And then I've got a young concept model that I'd like to work with. And we're trying to sort out doing a concept shoot in the White Sands uh, oh, down in New Mexico. Now that the weather has cooled down a little bit. And, and Matt, what's next for you? You're, you're, uh, you got some stuff coming up. Yeah, going to the Royal Geographical Society in London for their annual Explore event. I'm going to be helping with the uh, vehicle-based expedition section of that. And uh, yeah, Anyone who's not been to the Explore event in London, uh, I'd highly, highly recommend it. Just walking those hollowed halls of the RTS. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's... I don't know. I think for a, for a traveler or an explorer, um, going to that, going to that place is selfie worthy, selfie worthy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll take a selfie. Yeah. It's such a reminder of how insignificant all of my travels have been compared to those people that have done that before me. Yeah. I mean, it'll be cool to, you know, to, to work with some young explorers and to work with some legitimate scientists that, um, just need a little bit of help on the, on the vehicle side. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to that. It's cool to, you know, I guess try and pass a little bit of knowledge on. So yeah, nice. Yeah, what about you? I mean, I'm, I'm uh, hopping on the Honda. I'm going to ride down to Phoenix, and and uh, Infinity's launching a couple new oh cool. SUVs. So we're going to go to New Mexico, and the it's the first designed and built space station. It's a space port is what they call it. Oh, um, yeah, so we're going to go, yeah, so we're gonna go, we're going to go check out the, uh, Virgin galactic spaceport and, uh, drift various vehicles and drive off road with SUVs. And that'll be fun. Is that over near the very large array in New Mexico? I think so. I think they're I'm in the same basic area. Another selfie worthy couple, thing. A couple of weeks from now is the festival of the cranes there at Bosque del Apache. And I oh, think nice. I'm going to be down there as well. Uh, but yeah, that's that's a beautiful time to be there. New Mexico is so crazy. Yeah. I, I feel it's probably one of the most underrated Southwest. It states. really is. Um, it's gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, there's some of the. I, I want to say it's the oldest continuously habited city in North America is Santa Fe. Well, be, the yeah. oldest continuously occupied village is Moencopi on the res north of Flagstaff. Okay, that goes back thousand years. Yeah. But, uh, as a, as a, I mean, there's a town. lot of history yeah, in, yeah. in, in New Mexico. Um, I was reminded we were just out for Overland Expo East and everybody in the East coast is, Oh, well, there's no history on the West coast. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have fun with traffic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, so we had some good stuff coming up. Thanks so much, Bruce, for being on the podcast with us. Uh, you have been an inspiration to me. It's amazing that you live here in Prescott. That's how we, we first connected all those years ago. We got to see the world together and uh, make sure everybody check out Bruce's work. Uh, he does contribute to Overland Journal on a regular basis. Uh, what's your Instagram again, Bruce? At Dorn.Bruce, D-O-R-N dot B-R-U-C-E. Yeah, he's the real deal. And thank you all for listening. Matt, you got anything for us before we go? No, no, I'm great. All right, man. So will you clay bar my back? <laughs> Please. $27. Okay, sold. <laughs> all right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.